Okay, good morning again. If you would, please turn to the book of Acts. Acts of the Apostles. I will be reading Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us, and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now, this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language a keldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. And let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two. Joseph, called Barsabas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, inspired, infallible word. So, Father, let us see, let us live. Luke paints a drama. May we enter it through the words and by the Holy Spirit to see truth and to obey and be moved by the truth we see to the glory of Jesus. Amen. We live 1,985 years after the historical accounts that Luke gives us in Acts chapter 1. So the question is, how do we know that Christianity is true? How do you know that it isn't just subjectively true for you, helps your life and gives you some meaning, but it's not necessarily true for others? Well, so far we've seen Luke has given us the foundation of Christianity, and that foundation is the historical bodily event of his resurrection from the dead. As he told us in verse 3, Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing over and over and over and over again 
during 40 days. So our evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is based on the credibility of these eyewitnesses. So how do we know that these 12 men and hundreds more were credible? That's the question Luke is dealing with throughout chapter 1. And so he continues it from verse 12 to the end of the chapter, verse 26. See, as we read our Bibles and as you read your Bible, different kinds of literature from letters, epistles, narratives, poetry, songs. A really important question often to ask is, why did the human writer insert that here? Why did he give us that? He could have left it out. Why did he include this at this point? What's his line of reasoning? What's, what's he want us to grasp? What's his purpose? And so what we have now at this point is Luke fills us in on what was happening during those ten days between Jesus' ascension into the glory cloud and to the other realm of heaven until he comes back again like that on the Mount of Olives and the day of Pentecost when the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit, will be poured out, Jesus will baptize them in the Holy Spirit. He fills us in with what was going on with these 11 guys and a whole bunch of other disciples of Jesus in those 10 days. But why? Why does he just jump to Pentecost? Why does he do this? I think the answer is twofold. First, he wants us to know how important the Holy Spirit's written word, the Scripture, is. He's going to let us know what happened at Pentecost and is true for, his, for Theophilus and any other reader down through. Jesus will pour out the Spirit and it will affect people experientially. He wants us to know that that same Holy Spirit is the one who wrote the Scripture. And not only that, but in this passage, the way Luke does it, he wants us to know that not only all the, the good things, the welcomed things in life that happen, but the bad, painful things that we experience in life through twists and turns are all under God's sovereign control. So much so that the example he gives, he says, the Holy Spirit predicted this a thousand years before. He wants us to see that. Secondly, he's driving home the point that the resurrection, again, of Jesus Christ is central to what Christianity is and it's why Christianity is the only true way to God and salvation from our sin. He wants us to know that these men who proclaimed the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead are trustworthy. They're not religious frauds. That's his overall point. So, let's start with verse 12. In that little first section, Luke, he, he sets up the context for us of what's going to follow. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Okay, they're, they're on the Mount of Olivet. Jesus ascends to heaven. They walk from where they were on the Mount of Olives because it's right outside the eastern gate of Jerusalem. They walk about five blocks, maybe here to Artesia, and they get back into Jerusalem. They go through the streets and find the place that they had been renting. And they go up. Verse 13. And when they had entered, they went up, to the upper room where they were staying. 
And who went up there? He lets us know. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, the eleven remaining apostles. They went up. These guys whom Jesus, a couple years earlier, out of all of his disciples, chose twelve. But there was also a bunch of other people with him also. So we read in verse 14. All these, eleven, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus' brothers. He's got brothers. Jesus' mom, Mary, is there in that gathering over those ten days of prayer meetings and Bible studies. After she conceived Jesus in her womb by the Holy Spirit as a virgin, she and Joseph went on to have other children the old-fashioned way. There is zero biblical evidence that any of us should pray to Mary. And the doctrine within the Roman church of the perpetual virginity of Mary, a very late doctrine, it developed out of a false idea in church history that celibacy is morally superior to having marital relations. Mary was born into sin, just like the rest of these people in that room, just like every one of us. She was there, though. She was there because she also was a believer. Jesus was her Savior, not just her son. And Jesus' brothers were there, which is amazing because just a few months earlier, they didn't believe in him. They weren't following him. In John 7, 5, we read this, For not even his brothers believed in him. And at one point, early on in Jesus' ministry, we read from Mark 3 that his brothers, his family, probably his sisters too, they thought he was a loony tone. Then Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again in hometown so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. But we know, after his death, and then he rose from the dead, during that 40-day period, he stood in front of his brother, James. We know that clearly from Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. And that James became one of the central main leaders of the church in the city of Jerusalem for the next number of decades. Don't have any information with it, but I think chances are he appeared to all his brothers. No. And he had some brothers. This is what we read from Mark 6. Verse 3. Because he goes home. Home crowds usually not thrilled with a little kid that grows up and is the prophet. And we read this. Is this not the carpenter? Makes our tables and chairs. Isn't he the son of Mary? And isn't he the brother of James? And Joseph and Judas, Jude, who wrote the book of Jude, and Simon, and are not his sisters, plural, with us? Which means at least two. The way that, you know, my math works, Mary had at least seven children. 
maybe more in all. But his brothers now, this time, during that 10 days, and thus clearly during those 40 days of the resurrection, his brothers were there in that room. And then Luke also tells us the women were there. Now, the women refers to many women who were very close followers and disciples of Jesus and numbers of them who were financially supporting his ministry for these years. Luke tells us this in his first volume, Luke 8, 1 to 3. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. He names a few. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. And Susanna. And many others who provided for them out of their wealth. So these women now in that upper room, they're witnesses to the crucifixion and to the resurrection. Luke tells us this at the end of his first volume about the resurrection. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now, who did? It was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. So these are the people that are there. Luke tells us who all the players are for the most part, and it all goes all the way up to 120 persons. And then he gets to his main point. They with focused minds on the same track, devoted, devoted themselves to praying together. For ten days after the ascension, these people, the men didn't go back up to Galilee and start the fishing business who knows how they're being supported? Maybe some day labor in Jerusalem. Don't, but for the most part, what they did for ten days was meet and pray and look to Scripture and wait. Wait. Because Jesus told them, do not leave the city of Jerusalem. But wait. until the promise of the Father is given to me. And I will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. You will be filled with power by the Spirit of God. Wait. That's what they're doing. And out of that praying together comes Peter's speech that we see here about choosing a replacement for Judas. And so the question is, why does Luke give us this? But not just that. You'll see, he, he interrupts Peter's speech and puts in a long parenthesis about Judas. And so yes, why, Luke, are you doing that? This emphasis on Judas's horrific end and then his replacement of that twelfth seat with Matthias. And I think as we read slowly, I hope it starts to make sense what Luke is doing. So, pick up with verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. Luke lets us know the company of persons was in all about 120. And Peter said... Brothers, 
the Scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. So Peter just said, the Scripture had to be fulfilled. That is, biblical passages concerning Judas had to come to pass. In the Greek, day, it is necessary that they come to pass. Now, what scriptures? Well, he tells us in verse 20. Drop down there. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. And let another take his office. So Peter quotes two different psalms. And then he gives in this whole meeting the fulfillment of those two passages. The first half of verse 20, he quotes Psalm 69, verse 25. May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. And in the text, it's fulfilled in how Judas betrayed and thus committed suicide. He died and how the money bought a field, this blood money of his. He left his seat, the twelfth seat, empty, desolate. The second half of verse 20 quotes Psalm 109, Verse 8, let another take his office. And that's fulfilled in the way Matthias takes Judas's place. But don't miss the main encouraging point that Peter begins with. Verse 16 again. Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Luke wants us to see something. More than that, the Holy Spirit, through Luke, wants us to really grasp a foundational truth. And that's this. If the Holy Spirit says something, it must be true. If the Holy Spirit foretold events beforehand that are going to come to pass, then they must come to pass. Even if it takes a thousand years, David, a thousand years beforehand, penned Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. That's what Peter says. Was Peter right? Did it really have to happen? Did Judas really have to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver? I mean, isn't life really ultimately determined by autonomous, independent human free will? Or, can we Christians really trust the unmovable doctrinal truth statements of the Holy Spirit in Scripture? Can we trust the predictions of the future, like we sung about some this morning? And, and I, watched, I watched a 19-year-old kid on my Facebook last night, in his last breaths dying, filled with other Christians in that room. Can we trust 
the prediction of the resurrection because the Holy Spirit spoke them in the Scripture. So when crises hit, when danger comes, when fear grabs our hearts, when, when I didn't expect it to feel this horrific, whatever that it is in your life when it comes. In those times, you as a believer then run to the Father in prayer and you look up into His face. Are you going to see a Father who is as disturbed and as fearful for your future as you feel? Or are you going to see a Father a loving, caring Father who has everything in sovereign control. And His promises to be your protector forever are true. The only way we have that experience in our lives as Christians is through Him who is our rock. And the way He is our rock is the Holy Scripture. The Scripture has been declared, spoken, whether it's the Mosaic books or whether it's David pouring out his heart or Luke penning the early church or Paul writing Romans. It is the Holy Spirit speaking. God Himself. That's our rock. And so as our country is unraveling, our society, our culture is becoming more and more amped up and clearly anti-Christ. Yeah. Look up into the Father's eyes and know the Scripture will be fulfilled. And ultimately, Christ and His bride will win. That's why I think Luke now inserts this really long parenthesis about Judas in order to illustrate for us that it's not just in the good times. Yes, great, God promised, but He's promised some horrific things too. He promised a betrayer of Jesus. And it's at those moments where to know God is in absolute control. You gotta, you gotta feel what Luke is letting us know with these guys. You gotta go back into that room. That night when Judas kissed Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, it was for them only 42, 44, 46 days ago. They lived with this guy for a few years. The women and the men, more than these eleven. He was one of them. Judas's betrayal and his suicide was not easy for these persons, any more than it would be for us to deal with, grasp it, get their heads around it. How could anyone be chosen by Christ? He's now risen. They've had all these resurrection appearances and He was one of them. How, how could He do that? And not only that, did Jesus mess up? Did He just blow it by choosing Him? Peter and the others found the answer in the Scripture. 
the scripture, Peter said, had to be fulfilled. I will read again. And here Luke's parenthesis come in. Brothers, Peter says, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. And then Luke cuts Peter off and he says, now this man Judas acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known. Remember, he's writing about 30 years later. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in the Aramaic, their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. Why does he do it? That's gory. So why does he insert this here? So you remember the context first, because we we got the other Gospels, and Matthew's very helpful of what happened here, okay? Judas, remember, he goes back in the temple. What did I do? What did I do? And he throws the money down in the temple. They say, we don't want your money. We don't want your blood money. Within hours, Judas is dead. And the leadership of the Jews, they know that. And they say, what are we going to do? Well, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We ain't going to take it. We're going to take that money, though, in Judas's name. We're going to buy that field where he hung himself. And funny, it broke. And after being bloated, his guts just poured out. We're going to buy that field, and we'll use that to bury strangers. We don't know us to bury him. We'll bury him in that field with that blood money. And I think Luke then tells us and records this for us and says this is what's happened. Because he wants to say you can not only believe in the rock, solid truth of Scripture. When things are going great, yes, fulfillment. But especially when things go bad, really bad. Like an apostle of Jesus Christ hanging himself and finally falling and his guts bursting out in a disgusting mess. It's at those times that you need all the help you can get to believe and trust in the purposes of God when that friend betrays you when that spouse betrays you, when that cancer comes, you can trust what the Holy Spirit has spoken. Think about it. Jesus was very human with a human soul and the human limitations. He was tested in all things, just like we are. Yet, He never sinned. What would have it been like if Jesus had no way to interpret and to understand Judas? When he reached out to and chose and lived with. If he had no way of putting Judas into God's eternal purposes, what would that have been like? Well, we, we know that's not what it was for Jesus. The Apostle John writes this in John 6.64. Jesus is speaking but there are some of you who do not believe. That's a comfort to Jesus. He knows truth about how God is working. And then John says this, For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray Him. 
And in Jesus' greatest time of need, the night before his torture and execution, he went to the Father and he prayed this. Father, while I was with them, the, those to whom you have given to me, particularly the twelve, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the Son of Destruction, so that the Scripture, the Scripture, the Scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus was not undone and confused and wringing his hands at the treachery of Judas. He was confident in his prayer in the midst of it because he knew the Scripture. And so that's the first psalm Peter gives us. Judas's seat is left empty, desolate. And it takes him to Psalm 109, and he quotes it, and then he says this, begin with verse 21. And so, let another take his office, and so, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning way back at least three years earlier from the baptism of John until the day, just a few days ago, when Jesus was taken up from us. Okay, there's a whole bunch of people who that's their experience. There's women and there's a bunch of men. Let me pause for a minute. When you're reading Luke, it's really clear when Jesus chooses his apostles in the midst. He's, he's been going for a while and then finally chooses the twelve. But at, he chose the twelve after he prayed all night long out of hundreds and hundreds of disciples. Men and women. So out of hundreds of men, he chose twelve. The rest didn't say, I ain't they, they're all walking with him. They're with Jesus. Until the day when he was taken up. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Now, clearly, numbers of those men are there of the 120 in the room. And one must become with us apostles a witness. So we got, we got to get this. These apostles, these 11 guys, were not PhDs in theology. They were blue-collar workers. They didn't make their living working for a think tank they weren't philosophers. This is really important to the centrality of Christianity. These guys, this is, this is their identity. This is what they were. They were witnesses. That's it. They're witnesses. These guys lived with Jesus for three years. They saw him when he was tired and hungry. They saw him get up early every morning and go away with enough time to freely pour out his guts and his heart to his Father, the creator of the universe, as a human being, cry. And pray they knew he was fully human. And then they watched him 
be executed on a bloody Roman cross. And they experience a kind of fear and terror and hopelessness and abandonment like they never experienced ever before that. And then everything changed after 40 days of appearances and Bible studies with the Master teaching them and eating them and take a break. Let's have some more fish. That was great. And the next day in another room and sometimes up in Galilee and they go back to Jerusalem. Their life was utterly transformed by their experience to which they are witnesses. And so, it wasn't just those 11 guys who had all those experiences. A bunch of other people did too. And so they needed to pick one. And so we pick up then, Luke says, in verse 23. He tells us what happened. And they put forward two men. Joseph, called Barsabas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And then they prayed and said, You, Lord, who knows the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So they prayed. Let's get some rocks. Same, yeah, these are about the same. They write Joseph's name on one, and write Matthias's name on one. This is one way they could have done it, okay? Put them in a bag. Okay, who wants to draw? Draw. Okay, Mary, the mother of Jesus. I don't know. Okay, <laughs> pull it out. Matthias. And he became the twelfth apostle. And so, Luke drives home the point of the Holy Spirit, spoke the scripture. He spoke it all. And he drives home the point of the importance that Judas's seat needs to be filled so that uh, 12 of us, and Jesus makes prophecies about 12 seats in heaven and drinking and 12 thrones of the apostles. And it needs to be filled because that office of Jesus' apostles sent out ones, personally sent and commissioned through, not just before his resurrection, but after his resurrection was utterly significant. The Holy Spirit spoke the Scripture and the eyewitnesses to the historical event of Jesus Christ. Now, Luke puts this in, this whole scenario we've seen, before chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. The day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls. He puts it before the power of the Holy Spirit upping the ante of ongoing spiritual experiences. So why does he do it? So let's just think Briefly then, just for a moment then, about this short narrative that we have seen this morning that Luke gives us. He has turned our minds and our hearts to trust the written Word of God in all things, even the bad things like Judas's betrayal and suicide. And so it's as if he's saying, Oh, Theophilus, and all the other Christians Luke knows are going to be reading his account, Oh, yes. You know the power of the Spirit's come. But as I tell this story, I'm not there yet. I'm going to get to chapter 2. And the power of the Holy Spirit 
will come upon all believers. Jesus will baptize them after this, after this ten days. The Holy Spirit will be poured out in such power that there will be persons that will speak by the Holy Spirit in unknown tongues that they've never learned. And they will prophesy and do wonders and signs. In other words, yes, it will be real experiences. But He's saying, none of these, none of these spiritually intoxicating experiences are to be disconnected from the Scriptures or the eyewitnesses and their accounts their testimony about who Jesus really is, about His life, about His suffering and His death, about His resurrection, about His ascension, and about His promise to return. Everything, in other words, that the Holy Spirit says as He comes in power, it is to magnify Christ. It is to lift up His life, His death, His resurrection, and its meaning in salvation, and to apply it experientially to sinners. In the Holy Spirit's coming, in His present day working, then and now, He doesn't bypass this historical knowledge of Jesus which the Holy Spirit breathed out through the Hebrew Scriptures and through the eyewitness testimonies and writings of the New Testament apostles. Everything the Holy Spirit says is in line with the once-for-all revelation of the Hebrew Scripture and the testimony of Jesus' chosen apostles. And that's why one of those eyewitnesses in that room that day, about 40 years later, he will write a letter to the church saying this, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is truly human, that's what he means in the context, by has come in the flesh, that spirit is from God. And every spirit, and this was happening, that's why John's writing it, people call themselves lovers of Jesus, and it wasn't the work of the Spirit of God being evidenced by their doctrine. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus is truly come in the flesh is not from God. And so let me close and say this to us then. None of you here are merely an intellect. You're not merely a mind in order to understand the truth. Got that? Jesus is Lord. Who He is. What the Gospel is. You're not merely an intellect in order to grasp theological concepts. A computer can do that. You are also a spiritual being. That means you have the capacity of deep affections, deep yearnings, and spiritual communion with the Father. And so let me say, pursue Pursue being affected by God, the Holy Spirit, in your daily life. 
Pursue the truth that your mind sees in Scripture. Oh God, let me appropriately feel, respond, act, repent, do, pray. Pursue being affected to the depths of your souls by the Holy Spirit who has been poured out for you. But never, never do this by moving away from the Scripture which the Holy Spirit spoke. Because if you do, that would mean you're moving away from. Even though you may have experiences, you will be moving away from the Holy Spirit into deception. And so, I close pleading with us. Pray. Pray. Cry out. Yearn to obey Paul when he said, be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's not merely, okay, I believe in that, and so I'm filled. Come on, you know that, right? I'm so aware of my sin and hardness of heart and stubbornness and arrogance and pride. When I say, I want to be filled, I want that to be smashed, and I need the power of your Holy Spirit. Oh, Father, to do it. Pray and yearn for the filling of the Holy Spirit while ongoingly clinging to the Scripture and to the testimonies of the eyewitnesses. Yearning, O oh God, do it. Let's worship and sing to our Lord and Savior. Oh, Father, you are good. And I pray that as strange as it sounds, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit fall upon us stronger and stronger so that we would yearn for more of the power of your Holy Spirit working in us and through us. You are good. You are wonderful. Thank you. Holy Father, for what we are about to experience in a few minutes. The beautiful ordinance and drama of death to new life in Christ through baptism. Amen.